<laughs> well, actually, I'm not. No. <laughs> I was reading today a short passage from a teacher named uh, Anthony DeMello, who many of you have probably read or studied, a beautiful, beautiful Dharma teacher who mixes Buddha Dharma and uh, spiritual Christianity and just basic wisdom. And he began one of his books with this little story, which is commonly repeated in different forms in many traditions. He said, a man found an eagle's egg and put it in a nest of a barnyard hen. The eaglet hatched and the brood of chicks, with the brood of chicks and grew up with them. All his life, the eagle did what barnyard chicks did thinking he was a barnyard chicken. He scratched the earth for worms and insects. He clucked and cackled, and he would thrash his wings and fly a few feet into the air. Years passed, and the eagle grew very old. One day, he saw a magnificent bird above him in the cloudless sky. It glided in graceful majesty among the powerful wind currents, and scarcely a beat of its, with scarcely a beat of its strong golden wings. The old eagle looked up in awe. Who's that, he asked. That's the eagle, the king of birds, said the neighbor. He belongs to the sky. We belong to the earth. We're chickens. So the eagle lived and died a chicken, for that's what he thought he was. So the story sometimes goes, it's a little bit more of a uh, uh, instant generous version where the, the eagle or whatever animal it is sees its reflection in a lake or a stream and realizes all along that it was uh, a great, was the queen or king of the skies. But in this case, I think this is more important for us. The, where the eagle lives and dies, a, a chicken, for that's what he thought he was. Because each of us, in our own way, thinks of ourselves as somebody. And we even, when we practice meditation, we often think of ourselves as meditators. And we think what we're doing is meditating. I am meditating. And that's because we tend to be very stuck in a conventional view of reality. And it is the work of the Dharma, it's the work of waking up that, that hopefully uh, you won't simply be, as I've said in the last many weeks, we won't simply be seekers, but that we'll be, we'll be finders. We will, we, will, uh, we will wake up out of this out of this delusion of being somebody. A second story he told I thought would be appropriate for this same conversation. He said on, uh, he was watching Spanish television and he heard a story uh, about this gentleman who knocked on his son's door. Jaime, he says, wake up. 
Jaime answers, I don't want to get up, Papa. The father shouts, Get up! You have to go to school. Jaime says, I don't want to go to school. Why not? asks the father. Three reasons, said Jaime. First, because it's so dull. Second, the kids tease me. And third, I hate school. And the father says, well, I'm going to give you three reasons why you must go to school. First, because it is your duty. Second, because you are 45 years old. And third, because you are the headmaster. <laughs> wake up, wake up. <laughs> so the whole point is to wake up. And everything we do in practice is on behalf of waking up out of the delusion of a separate, of our separate individuality. The view that we exist apart from the whole. That as is often used as a metaphor, that we are the one wave that has gotten separated from the ocean. Forgetting that the, the wave is never separate from the ocean. So when the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree, we think of the Buddha as somebody sitting under the Bodhi tree. And he sat there, and the thought may have arisen, I am, I am so-and-so sitting under the Bodhi tree. But after a while, as things quieted down, as mind and body came together, it became clear that there was nobody sitting under the Bodhi tree. That, that there was a, that yes, on the conventional sense, if somebody were to look, they would see a body sitting under the bow tree. And, it, and that somebody seems like they have a, a certain kind of individuality. But from the inside, from the direct experience, as, our, as the mind and body quieted down, there was breath, as we talked about tonight in the instruction. There were sensations. There were moods. There were thoughts. There were images. All This whole array, this whole field of experience was arising and being known was being noticed. But nowhere in that process of experiences being known was there a meditator. There was simply thoughts, but there was no thinker. There were simply thoughts being known. You hear this expression all the time, thoughts without a thinker. Feelings without a feeler is a yogi came into one of my classes once, said, got up in the middle of the night and went to the bathroom and said, peeing happens, but nobody who pees. No matter how far we look, no matter how deep our inquiry, no one has ever found a meditator if one looks for the one who's meditating. 
No one can look, find a thinker. And so we can, moment by moment, not keep reinforcing the idea is, I'm a meditator. I am meditating. So we, we look again and again, what's actually happening here? And we wake up. We're 45 years old. We are the queen and king of the sky. What do you find when you look for the meditator? And we often hear the expression, there's, there's doing but no doer, there's peeing but no peer. What is it that's lifting the arm? We say, I'm lifting my arm. What is it that's seeing through these eyes? What is it that's smelling and tasting? Has anybody seen that? That somebody. You know the funny little poem that I sometimes share? It's anonymous, but the, I may probably, I'm getting senile, so I may have done this last week, but it's the one about everybody wants to be somebody. Nobody wants to be nobody. But if that somebody could just be nobody, that nobody would really be somebody. <laughs> so we actually deprive ourselves of a, of a great freedom, a great realization. The whole purpose of the practice, not to just become calm meditators and then be stuck in that identity. There's never been a meditator in, the, in, the tru in truth. So the whole point of the meditation is to come out of the, what the Buddha called Sakaya Ditti, come out of the view of ourselves that keeps us bound in a, in a state of contraction, in a state of, in a state of dis-ease, a state of separation. As Kala Rinpoche put it, you live in illusion and the appearance, the way things appear. There is a reality and you are that reality. When you understand this, you'll see that you're nothing. But being nothing, you're everything. So free of the view of myself as a meditator, free of that view, frees me of the view that is so, so chronic, is the view of, of other. Free of the view of self, frees me of the view of other. So then, everyone, everything, whether it's the so-called inner experience of sensations and moods and thoughts, or outer experience of so-called others, everything becomes uh, the display, the natural expression, the extension of, uh, of the, the knowing mind. Knowing but without a knower. Awareness without an awarer. <laughs> so when, you, when I ask at the beginning of the evening to invite you anyway, not ask, but invite you to simply recognize the primary fact of being aware, 
I, I may have used the expression, you are aware. And see, when we use this expression, you are aware, we're, we're using conventional language that implies that there's a me here and a you there, and that's conventional understanding. We're not going to throw that out completely. But with meditative awareness, we look more deeply at what we mean by you and me. And we see that this is just a, has a conventional usefulness, but there's really no you and me in truth. And so when I say, be aware of the, um, just be aware of the primary fact that you, that, you're aware, that you are aware. Just be aware. And notice what you're aware of. What immediately comes into, into view. Like right now, what are you aware of? You may be aware of the sound of my voice, of seeing me, of feeling the whole room around. All of this is happening and being known in awareness. In order, to, in order for things to be known, this, without awareness, nothing is known. So that's, the, that's why I say it's the primary fact. It, without that, um, not possible to know anything. So now that we've established that there is this sense of being aware, let's just examine the sense of somebody being aware. So let's, let's turn and look at what it is that, what's, who is it who's in there who's aware? Who's there? Who is awareing right now? I mean, this is really the point. Why should we wait until the new year to find out? Because it's very easy to incarnate as the meditator and then, and then make your path a very long, long, arduous journey to find what, is, what is, can be easily known right now. What is it that's knowing this arm moving? Who's moving the arm? And what's noticing that? Is this interesting to you? <laughs> no? <laughs> well, it wouldn't, we wouldn't need to do this if we weren't so um, busy trying to be somebody. If we could simply let ourselves be that field of awareness or that, that knowing, that just rest in that knowing and let allow things to be known. Because it, it turns out that, that that knowing quality, not somebody who knows, but that knowing quality, when it's cultivated, when it's nurtured, is able to withstand, is able to, is able to experience joys and sorrows, so many difficulties and not take it personally. It can experience the, if it's that can experience an increasing sense of being able to withstand the what what are called the eight worldly winds, the winds of praise, the winds of blame, the winds of gain, the winds of loss, the winds of pleasure, pain, fame, shame. Well, that's on my mind. This is uh, what Ajahn Chah. 
speaks about it. To me, this speaks of the, the quality of, of just let, allowing things to be known without necessarily there being a knower, without taking it personally. If your house is flooded or burnt to the ground, whatever the threat to it, let it concern only the house. If there's a flood, don't let it flood your mind. If there's a fire, don't let it burn your heart. Let it be merely the house, that which is outside of you, that is flooded or burned. Now is the time to allow the mind to let go of attachments. And the number one attachment, the deepest attachment, and the Buddha described four great attachments. And to me, these four attachments are the four four primary ways that our mind tends to construct a sense of somebody. The four attachments are attachments to sense pleasures. A lot of identity goes into seeking experience, seeking things, seeking seeking adventures, whatever it is, to uh, that attachment to sense pleasures. So a lot of our internal world of fantasy, our, our identity constructed again and again is trying to find, seek out pleasure. And that one that we imagine in our mind, that one doesn't really exist. It's a little, it's a little virtual version. So that the second is the identity or attachment with views and opinions. So much proliferation, so much rumination about how things are, how, how, how we think and how other people should think and just all of the, the ping-pong of, of views and opinions and the, and the pain that is felt when there is an identity, an identification with a view of, of what's right. And we all know if we're in any way politically uh, aware or socially aware that it, that people who are not socially aware or politically um, or are, who are politically different, uh, it, it produces a lot of dis-ease, a lot of ill will, a lot of grasping at, at uh, how people should think or should be. And so there's a lot of suffering around the identity uh, that grows around views and opinions. And the third is the, is the attachment identification with rites and rituals, how things are supposed to be done. What is the right way to meditate? What is the right way to, whether you should be do samadhi first before you do vipassana, vipassana before you do samadhi, whether you need to practice with the breath or with open awareness. There's so much conflict. You can't believe, And this has been going on for 2,600 years at least in the Buddhist tradition, so much identity around views of even Dharma, something that is all about seeing through the whole identity view. And you can sit next to somebody who's, you know, we, we have a whole team of teachers at Spirit Rock, and it's been a great practice over the years. At first, I could hardly listen to the Dharma talks of my colleagues who I didn't agree with, the way they were saying it. Slowly, slowly, over, over 30 years, I started to see the, the beautiful, unique expression of each one. But there was so much identity around what they should be saying and what they shouldn't and 
how they should be doing it and what's important about the Dharma. And, what's, and that's just ego. That's just a view of self, a view of somebody that doesn't exist that gets created in the mind and then and I'm often running and I'm not even... I've, what happens when I'm caught in one of those? I've completely lost contact with the simple reality of things being known. Things being known without a knower. Things being done without a doer. Brushing my teeth. Combing my hair. Just let it, just right there with whatever's happening. Listening. Speaking. Speaking. Who speaks? Has anyone ever seen a speaker? Do you think there's an agent in here who's speaking? Speaking is happening. It is speaking is the coming together of, of many, many different causes and conditions. But in all the scanning with the with the depth of awareness, never has there been found a speaker. Yet, of course, conventionally, I'm speaking. And interestingly enough, when when the thought I'm speaking comes up, all of a sudden I go, ooh. ooh. <laughs> There's somebody speaking. And as soon as there's somebody speaking, there's a little, oh, there's, there are a lot of people listening. <laughs> and that's freaky. <laughs> and now I'm a little bit more uncomfortable. Now I'm starting to feel embarrassed or self-conscious. And all, you know, I'm not really. But, but all those things unfold from a basic misperception that what is self, that is completely a selfless process just happening. Is taken to be me and mine. Please. Say more about your question. How do I think about free will and choice? Because I don't want to just keep it on the intellectual level. Yeah, so so what about the space of what about the free will and the space of choice and the fact that that countless choices we have to make countless choices every day and that we're continually choosing. Now that's a very conventional view of what's actually happening. It's a, from in the conventional level you choose your cho- you make your choices, I make mine. But meditatively we we attempt to examine what we call ourselves making a choice. And when we look very carefully at the sequencing, at the process of how choices are made, it becomes clear, but it should not, you don't adopt this as a belief, but it becomes clear that choices are made based on information arising, but nobody who chooses. And so all that whole conversation of free will and is, is based on the paradigm, on the point of view that there is a, there's a chooser. And that's a very limited, conventional, dualistic point of view. So. But then what's the point of all the teachings around white speech if there's no choice around speech? If all we're doing is acting out of the causes and conditions that are arising, that we're not actually, you know, I mean, I, I kind of feel like but you're not, the purposes you're, of meditation is yeah. that you're actually creating that space between your sort of automatic reaction that you might have to something and what you can choose, how you can choose to respond. Yes, yes. From a a conventional way of describing the Dharma, 
we are creating the we are creating the space of choice, a wider open field of creative possibility, and the wider and open that field, the more the space is to make to to not simply act reactively, but to choose wisely and especially choose to act in a way that that doesn't cause harm. So it's so that is but that is a conventional viewpoint. That's the, the part of the Dharma that's meant to be, um, that, that is um, using the language of our conventional understanding. But the Dharma doesn't stop there. The Dharma also wants you to examine carefully what it is when we say, I'm creating the space of choice. What is it that's creating that choice? And if we look carefully, and examine that the sequence of how a choice is made and a wise choice is made, we see that you heard some dharma. The dharma, the teachings about wise action came into your ear. This may sound a little technical. You heard these teachings. They had the, the ring of truth. They had a resonance. That resonance gave rise to an impulse. That impulse to... Uh, it gave rise to a feeling of faith, of confidence. And that confidence became the cause of a desire to arise, to practice the Dharma. A desire, arise, a desire to arise to act in a way that didn't cause harm. And then that, that impulse, that desire to act in a way that was non-harming, was followed by action. And that action was to... to zip the lips when you're about to jump all over somebody, to, uh, to restrain the impulse to act out every sensual desire, uh, to actually consider whether it's, uh, whether it's a onward leading toward less dissatisfaction or is it inclined toward more dissatisfaction. But that whole process did not require somebody. There was no one behind that. It was a process of causes and conditions. And causes and conditions have no self, independent self-existence. So we, we're asked to look more deeply than the, than the conventional view. You don't look so happy with yeah, that. <laughs> now, when you say, I am not convinced, <laughs> who is not convinced? <laughs> what is it that's not convinced? What are you referring to? As, I am not convinced. Let's really look at that. I'm not convinced. You don't want to hear my argument for why I'm not convinced? No, I want you to look directly at who's not convinced. Because that's what we're exploring tonight. We can talk about the, the philosophy of, of uh, wise choice and karma and free will. It's a different dimension of the Dharma. But go ahead. I want to hear what you have to say, too. Well, I think that maybe it's an overly simplistic take on what you're saying, but it seems like it's very open to kind of a spiritual bypass take on the Dharma then because you're almost giving up responsibility for your actions. If there's, you know, there's not really anyone making choices here, I'm just, it, it seems like it could actually yeah. justify a lot of unwise. Yeah, it seems like... If you just if you took what I'm saying outside of the context of, of the whole Dharma, it could sound a lot like spiritual bypassing, or as the Tibetans call it, uh, one-legged emptiness, which means the emptiness but without the compassion, without the caring. But the um, 
But if you hear the, the whole story, and if you, if, if you really look into the implications of there being no independent self-existence, being the, the deepest implication that there is that there is no other, then everyone, everyone, everything that enters your field becomes the reminder of your caring. Because you can't help it. So I've yet to meet anybody who saw through the, the, this illusory self who did not become more passionately uh, altruistic, um, just passionately caring about uh, life and wanting to wanting people to wake up. Uh, so it's it, it's just the opposite of how it may appear. Again, without the without the the idea of it, it sounds like oh, no big deal. I, there's nobody here, so I can do, basically do anything. But that's not <clears throat> that's not really the the effect meditatively. But I appreciate the comment. Please, Gudar. Question: If you could comment that it seems that we are sometimes trying to overlay Western psychology on an Eastern spirituality tradition, you know, definition of self it's not about me, it's not within me, it's without me, or as really simple as you know, you are me and I am you. Don't need your side. Don't need my side. And you know, so I think isn't that the disconnect that? Yes, if we if we collapse Western psychology and and Buddhism together, so, and we don't have a good definition of terms, um, but we all come from because we grow up in Western society, Western culture, we've adopted this view of self, this psychological self, as a as a um, as a fundamental fact. So the basis of everything that we do is for ourselves. As Wei Wu Wei says, why are you so unhappy? He says, because 99.9% .9 of everything you do and think is for yourself, and there isn't one. <laughs> so that we don't, it is not necessary to throw away the, uh, the sense of individual or psychological self. That's not the point. It's to see, it's to understand the two truths, the, the conventional truth where we are, we have very unique individuality, a unique individual psychology, unique, born and, and forged by unique individual conditions, but to look more deeply at what we call our individuality and see that that individuality doesn't, in fact, exist truly independently. And that every single person is made up of, of uh, so-called persons is made up of selfless conditions of earth, of air, of fire, of water, of culture, of everything that, as I think I've been talking about in the last many weeks, everything that is actually beginningless. So where does this self begin that we say we are? First of all, where is it and where does it begin? Please, in the back, I love that you're... Try to come forward, though. Thank you for reminding me. So remember, the first three are attachment to sense pleasures, 
Second one, attachment to views and opinions. This is the Buddha. This isn't my opinion. <laughs> attachment to views and opinions. Attachment to rites and rituals. And the last one is attachment to the concept of self. <laughs> that is the deepest attachment. <laughs> the gotcha. <laughs> exactly. That, that there is within this, within this... Did you have your hand up too? Please. All right. I so I totally appreciate the question because it's so easy to conflate all these words and all these ideas of universal being and God and Dharma and and infinite intelligence, I think. But dharma is really the uh, word for, um, for truth, the way things are. And, and within that, th- there are many different levels of dharma. Dharma is also the teachings that point to uh, each person being able to realize the truth of the way things are. But there is no teaching within the dharma that posits a, some kind of infinite being but more the truth as just the way things are. And so there, there's a, uh, a real care in the teachings not to create the idea of some kind of supreme being because that creates the ultimate identity view, the identity view of me and then God as somehow separate. And rather one uh, looks at um, just what's actually here. What is here? And of course, it leaves it leaves anyone who practices with a, a sense of total mystery and awe. But but it's it's understood that it is that openness, it is that state of awe that is a state of freedom. It's the state it's the freedom to discover, and it's it's a. But most people are not courageous enough to strip away all of these ident ide, ideas of God and. Um, and um, even the ideas of Buddha nature, even the ideas of infinite consciousness, all these ideas literally have to be abandoned to come face to face with the way things are. So when we're really just you and I talking, we're in touch with the way things are. It's just, we're not complicating anything. There's not somebody talking to somebody else. There's just talking happening, but nobody who's talking, it's just a, it's a happening. <laughs> and, and then it, the closer we get to that happening, that spontaneous happening of, of talking or sharing a Dharma talk or acting or eating or drinking, when we're closer to that truth, to that Dharma, um, we get happier. And and, there, and uh, things are not so bad. But as soon as we th- think, I'm talking to you, and I'm the teacher, and you're the, the person who's coming, these are all maybe useful conventional designations. But if we get stuck in these identities, 
in this view of me and you and all, there's a, um, that, it's the beginning of, of conflict in a way. It's the beginning of, of complications. It's the beginning of dividing the world into um, doers, into meditators, into students and teachers and all those things that have a conventional usage, but in the deepest part of ourselves, are, we don't need them. We function 200% better when we're simply, sim- simply being. I know that I function a lot better when I'm being. Please. The minute I know something. That makes sense. Yes. Exactly. Please. Angel, an, Angelas. So, so having insight into what's the engine that's driving the anger brings more relief than providing compassion toward the anger. Yes. Yeah, the providing compassion toward the anger is a wonderful thing when it's a spontaneous, when it's a spontaneous response of the heart. Because that spontaneous response of the heart doesn't require somebody. But as soon as I think I need to provide compassion toward this anger, I have to create a new identity as the one who has the anger and then the one who has to give compassion to it. And that, that creates a little tension. Even though the impulse, the, the uh, intention to provide compassion is a good one, it's, it still can be all, all bound up in, in, uh, in self, in, the, in a view of self. So it's... So it's helpful, but it's not as helpful as just seeing the situation for what it is. And so sometimes it is psychological, psychological or even meditative insight that brings relief. That was the Buddha's, the Buddha's um, freedom came from insight. It didn't come from some special experience. It came from insight into the way things are. So that, that insight comes on many levels. Sometimes it's psychological, sometimes it's universal, sometimes it's uh, very simple. So it makes sense what you're saying. And it's mostly with our practice, it's to, it's to notice how it is, what's true. So you don't have to be, you don't have to fit into some idea of a meditator or, or what, a right, what the right meditation is what the right intervention is. It's, it's put yourself in the same vicinity as what's going on. And then you'll see that, at least what I've discovered, is that I have whatever's there, and I, don't, I can't call it mine, but whatever's there is usually the intelligence or the compassion or whatever it is to, to unpack a situation and, and realize what went on and, or what's going on and what's needed. So we can we can get one of our big attachments is getting attached to our um, our toolbox, and then we become very identified with having being a meditator with all kinds of practices. We love our practices. 
And it can be just more... Now, who is it who loves all these practices? What is it that's loving all that? Who is the meditator right here and now? Who's hearing? Please. Great. Yeah. I, I don't know if I can repeat what you said, but what it, what does it say about you that instead? Yeah, so it's kind of putting it in the light of awareness. This whole self idea. So that I think what you're also pointing to is it's we don't wanna we don't have to uh, get rid of a self. We don't have to make a self bad. We just have to see that it has no ultimate existence that it's often associated with a story and feelings and and our history and all of that but it doesn't it it doesn't actually there's there's nothing that exists completely solidly independently permanently that exists apart from everything else it's just one of those things that arises in our lives a changing condition ego is like the weather sometimes the Ego is there. Sometimes it's not. You know, old, I, that's maybe not a good. <laughs> sometimes the ego weather is is pleasant, and sometimes it's not. But really, it's it is a, it comes and goes, just like the weather changes. Like, who are you now? What are you now? As you hear these, as you sit here, you know that sutra, the Avatamsaka Sutta from the Mahayana school. It says, having no view of self, one is always peaceful. So, so we're very big on exploring and understanding our ego and our self-views and stuff. But we're not, we often are still believing that that's who we are. But what are you, who are you, when you're free of that view? After the last view of yourself has passed, before the next one comes, what are you? So the way the Buddha realized this was paying attention, moment to moment. And in that paying attention, it became clear that everything that was being attended to was happening all by itself. It was selfless. Thoughts, feelings, emotions, there didn't seem, didn't seem to be anybody generating them. It just seemed to come and go. And then even, he even recognized that the knowing of these experiences was also coming and going. And that, that pulled the rug out. That there was no ground to stand on. And as, one, as that Japanese nun, uh, Tajitsu, said, it's at that point that when she saw that, that, that knowing arose and passed away, the objects of knowing arose and passed away, that she saw that there was nothing to hold on to. And at that point, she just, her mind opened and she fell into the midst of everything. As Nisargadot says, wisdom tells me I'm nothing, but love tells me I'm everything. 
Between these two, my life flows. So wake up. Wake up. Because it, and it's not just to say, oh, there's no self. It's to see that there's no other. We're all in this together. We, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, we inter are. It's all about interbeing. I think we've gone over tonight. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> but I think I'll end with, with the words of Ashvagosa, who I think lived in the 8th or 9th century. He said, The Dharma of the Buddha does not require a person to go into homelessness or to resign from the world unless he or she feels called upon to do so. But the Dharma of the Buddha requires every person to free themselves from the illusion of self, to cleanse one's heart, to give up one's thirst for pleasure, and lead a life of righteousness. And whatever people do, whether they remain in the world as artisans, as merchants, or officers of the king, or retire from the world and devote themselves to a life of religious meditation, let them put their whole heart into their task. Let them be diligent and energetic. And if, like the lotus flower, which grows out of muddy water, but remains untouched by the mud, they engage in life without cherishing envy or hatred. And if they live in the world not a life of self, but a life of truth, then surely joy, peace, bliss, and bliss will dwell in their minds. So let's just dwell for a moment in a life of truth instead of a life of self. May all beings see through the illusion of self May all beings see through the illusion of other. May all beings experience peace and bliss as their hearts dwelling. Merry Christmas, and uh, please, again, Yvonne Ginsberg on New Year's Eve, come and celebrate the New Year's, uh, sharing the Dharma, and then, uh, yeah, she'll explain who's, who's here the following week, but uh, just a little sneak preview, January 7th, Mark Coleman will be here, and then I'll be back on January 14th. But, so we have lots of Dharma, but not next week. Anyway, thanks for your practice, thanks for your generosity. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.